Hi everyone, welcome to episode 18 of Exploring Astrophysics, and today the main topic will be on stellar astrophysics. I'm joined by Dr. Rana Ezzedin, who is an astrophysicist at the University of Florida, and whose primary interest is in stars and uncovering the mystery behind the first stars and galaxies. What interests you about stellar astrophysics? Yeah, so um, first of all, let me start by saying um, I'm interested in astronomy in general, not just stellar astrophysics. Uh, but uh, the way I got interested in stellar astrophysics particularly is because um, I did my master's in, in astrophysics um, uh, in at the University of, of Notre Dame uh, in Lebanon, which is where I'm from originally. And uh, while I was taking different classes on different fields of and areas of astronomy from galactic astrophysics to cosmology to stellar astrophysics, um, I started getting very interested in, in stars, particularly because I think that they are at the intersection of everything we need to know about the universe. So without stars, we don't have galaxies. Without stars, we don't have planets or exoplanets. And stars allow us to really put everything into place in the bigger context of the universe, because when we study stars, we can understand their, uh, for example, I'm very interested in their chemical compositions in what they're made of and also their stellar parameters, which help us understand how the universe evolves in different parts and how the galaxy evolves. And so uh, in my master's, I got a chance to work on, on a project on stellar astrophysics uh, to try to determine the compositions of, of a sample of stars that are part of something we call an open cluster, which is a cluster of stars that are born together and are supposed to have the same age and the same chemical composition. And so I got to analyze these stars and try to show that indeed all of them had exactly the same chemical compositions to prove that it's a cluster. And so from there, I, I, was, I got really interested in, in stars or even more, I wanted to study them. And so when I did my PhD, I got to work even more on stars. And now I think they're my favorite objects in the universe. You mentioned like looking at the physical compositions and chemical compositions of these stars. How, how do you go about doing that? Because the only way you can look at these is just through observations, right? There's, you're, you're never going to be physically able to get like a sample of a star or something. Exactly. Uh, you know, we as, as astronomers, we don't really have a lab uh, like other scientists do, so we don't get to dissect a star and really see what it's made of. Uh, but we have our lab is the universe and our telescopes, basically. So um, it's an interesting process. Um, and it really all started, uh, you know, all the way back to the late 1800s or early 1900s when there was a, a bunch of, of women astronomers, or they were just women, you know, working at at Harvard Observatory uh, with Professor Pickering at the time who was collecting uh, what we call spectra or rainbows of stars. So a spectrograph is, is an instrument that is that we put on, on that we have on telescopes. And what it does, it allows us to see the different composition of the of the rainbow of stars. So we when we look at light and when we look at any type of gas, even if we have a you know a, a gas lamp. Uh, when we look at it with a spectrograph, we can see it, it 
breaks down the light into its components, which means the rainbow. But in addition, if we have a source of light behind this gas, like we have in the case of stars, because the star is, is emitting a lot of photons at its core, the light is passing through the atmosphere of the star, and it starts interacting with the gas. And by gas, I mean the chemical elements that are found in the atmosphere of the star. And so when it interacts, when this light interacts with the, with the atoms or the molecules that are found in the atmospheres, it absorbs the light. So the atom absorbs the light. And therefore, when the light continues and makes its way to our telescope, what we would see on this rainbow that we've collected is the lack of light. We see these dark patches in different parts of the spectrum. And uh, Going back to the Harvard story, so Professor Pickering was at the time trying to identify, you know, what different types of stars are by looking at their different rainbows or different spectra. And he had a lot of women helping him in, in the lab. And some of them, including Cecilia Payne um, and some others, identified these, these patches uh, in, in different parts of the stars. And she found that every location, so the location of the dark patch each one of them correspond to a specific element, which means that if we have a calcium atom or if a star has calcium in it, we're always going to find the dark rainbow at exactly the same place. And this is because of the quantum mechanical nature of light, because light is photons in addition to a wave. As, as we know from, from Einstein, Albert Einstein. And so um, based on this, she was able to analyze and find what stars are exactly made from and she was able to deduce that all stars or most stars are basically are made from hydrogen and helium and then they have other elements in them and the hydrogen and helium comes all the way back from the from the big bang this is what the universe was made of so the stars inherently have hydrogen and helium in them in addition to other elements that are usually made along the lifetimes of the stars and we can talk more in details how how do the stars get the chemical elements that that make them up sure that would be interesting and also uh so but you mentioned this open cluster you were working on is it you so what sort of compositions were you looking what are the things you were trying to find similar in these stars yeah so um when we collect the, the spectra or the rainbows of stars on our telescopes and then we analyze them, and I'm happy to talk more if you like about how exactly we analyze them, uh, we get to measure the quantity of each element that is found in each star, and we call it an abundance, a chemical abundance. So for the stars in an open cluster, uh, in order to show that this star is homogeneous, which means that indeed all the stars that make it up were formed at the same time, and they are made from the same gas, they should have the same, the same abundances or the same chemical compositions. So particularly, I was looking at some elements that can be found in all of the spectra or all of the rainbows of stars. And these are iron, magnesium, calcium, titanium. The reason why these are found in all of the stars is because there's a wealth of these lines in a stellar spectra. So what determines whether a, a particular line or particular uh, spectral line makes it to the rainbow of the star is first of all, how much of it there is in the star, in the atmosphere of the star. 
but also how strong a line is. And this all depends on the atomic data, so on the quantum mechanical aspect of, of the line or the transition itself. So usually we get an absorption line if we have a transition between two energy levels in the atom itself. Uh, and so when, whenever an atom absorbs a photon or absorbs it, the electron usually changes location and energy levels. And this is then, um, it's, it's manipul or it shows itself as an absorption line in the spectrum or the rainbow of the star. And so I was looking at these absorption lines in, in all the stars of the open clusters, and I was trying to determine and measure how much iron did each of them have, how much calcium, by uh, implementing models where I try to fit the spectrum or this, the whole rainbow that I got from the star to a synthetic one that I generated in my own computer. So I was putting all the conditions that I think are happening in the, the physics that's happening in the star and try to generate a synthetic or, or mock spectrum. And then I compare it each time to the observations by changing the chemical compositions until I find a good match and then when I find a good match for all the elements, I say that this is how much iron I have. This is how much calcium. This is how much magnesium, et cetera. When you observe these stars and then you have a spectra, how do you go about analyzing them and looking for those elements in the lines? Yeah. So once we have a stellar spectrum, we first have to... Uh, reduce the data that we get from the from the telescope so what we get on the telescope is what we call raw data or data that have not taken into account any of the instrumental artifacts or any of the sky contribution to our spectra so we usually have automatic pipelines that the telescopes produce that allow us to pass it through this pipeline until we get a spectrum that has been reduced and is only coming from the star. So we make sure that this is the only contribution from the star. After that, as I said, we really need to try to determine or we need to find the stellar parameters like the temperature of the star, the gravity, how much metals it has in it. And usually by metals, I mean astronomers metals. So if you have not heard about this before, uh, astronomers usually make try to make the periodic table very simple for them. Because hydrogen and helium were the only elements that were formed during the Big Bang, astronomers' metals is everything in the periodic table except for hydrogen and helium. So everything else that's not hydrogen and helium, we call it metals. And one is, you know, we, we say this because it makes it easier for us to find out how much of these elements are formed in the star itself. So we try to determine the temperature, the gravity of the star, the amount of metals it is by producing what we call a synthetic spectrum. So we generate this in our computer by uh, using what we call radiative transfer models. And these models usually take into account or try to produce how light from the core of the star interacts with the atmosphere and the atoms, all the atoms and elements found in the atmosphere of the star and how they produce individual spectral lines. So we put all of the physics that we think must be happening there, all of the atomic data, and then we generate this synthetic spectrum. And each different stellar parameter, so each temperature, each gravity, each metal or amount of metal, as we call it, metallicity, will change the shape of the spectrum lines. 
So therefore, every time we change this value, we're going to generate a new different type of stellar spectrum, and we compare it with the observed stellar spectrum, and we keep doing this iteratively until we have a good match, and then we say this is what the parameters and this is what the abundances of our star is. So once you know the chemical composition of these stars, what does that tell you about it? Does that like help you understand its age, how it's formed? Is that other sort of things you can infer? Yeah. So once we have the chemical compositions and the stellar parameters of our star, we can learn so many interesting things. So first of all, um, stars that are born at different epochs of the universe. So let's say, let's take our Milky Way galaxy. We know that the galaxy is several billion years old and it has formed stars at different epochs. So if I study three different stars at three different epochs and by studying their chemical compositions at each of these epochs, I can find out how the chemistry has evolved throughout the galaxy. Additionally, if I look at stars that are located in different parts of the galaxy, galaxy. So you know that we have the, uh, the core of the galaxy, the bulge, where we have a lot of young stars. Then we have the disk, where we have also young, but maybe re less relatively uh, young stars than the bulge. And then we have the halo of the Milky Way galaxy, which is everything, the spherical um, entity that kind of engulfs the galaxy itself. And this is where we have a lot of old stars. And so if I take three different stars in, in three different entities or three different parts of the galaxy and I study their chemical compositions, I expect the chemical compositions to reflect what the age of this part of the galaxy is made of. And so going back to this metallicity or the content or the metal content of a star, it's a very important indication of the age of the star. Because if we go back again to how the elements formed, as I said, most of the hydrogen or all the hydrogen and helium in the universe was formed by the Big Bang. But then everything else in the periodic table was formed inside the stars by nuclear fusion, or they were formed at the end of the lives of the stars by, for example, supernova explosions, or when two very heavy stars merge together, they also form a lot of these very, very heavy elements that are formed at the bottom part of the periodic table. So when I study this, the chemical compositions of stars and I identify and I measure these abundances or elements, it should reflect when the star was formed in which part or at which time of the universe. Because if I'm studying a very old star, the universe did not have enough time to produce a lot of these elements. And so I shouldn't have a lot of these metals in it. I shouldn't have a lot of iron, a lot of magnesium, etc. But if I study a younger star, like that of our sun, for example, or stars that are similar to our sun, these are much younger. And so they should have much more metals in their atmospheres. And this should be reflected in the chemical compositions. And so I make use of these different chemical compositions of different stars. And sometimes I dive into the tiny details. So sometimes the devil is in the details. Even though I know that or I've identified that this is an old star by looking at its chemical compositions, I'm interested to see if there are any differences or if there are any peculiarities about the star that help me understand chemical evolution and how the different elements were made. So, for example, 
I study particularly stars that are very old, that as I said, were found mostly in the Milky Way halo, which is the spherical entity around the, the Milky Way galaxy. And I study large samples of them because I would like to know what frequency of them, for example, have elements that are uh, that are very heavy, like, for example, those that are found at the bottom part of the periodic table, we call these elements R process or rapid neutron capture process stars. And these elements are like gold, like uranium, uh, like silver, all of these elements, we can detect them in stars. And when I study all of these detailed elements, I can understand exactly how they are formed and what different types of explosions or what different types of events contributed to the formation of these elements in these old stars. When you're studying these old stars and you, you find some peculiarities in some or, the, or some of the differences, what does that tell you about how the star evolved and why it's evolved differently? Like what are the the causes behind these, you know, slight differences between stars. Yeah, so this is where it's really where it gets very interesting because we, as I said, we can expect that most old stars to have very little iron in their atmosphere. But let's say I find that they have a lot of uh, a lot of gold in in their spectra, or they have a lot of silver, for example. Then what I do is that I know that these elements are not fused at the cores of the star. There must be another event, another external event that has formed these stars. So for example, to go back and talk about these heavy elements, particularly that are formed by what we call the rapid neutron capture process or the R process, it's a process where we have usually a target atom let's say it's iron, and it gets bombarded by a lot of neutrons. And so it starts forming heavier and heavier elements. And every time it grows, so it beta decays, meaning that it captures a neutron, it converts it to a proton, and this makes it a heavier element. So we form the next element in the periodic table. And so in order to have this process take place somewhere in the universe, as you can imagine, we need a lot of neutrons. And so for the very long time, astronomers have been trying to investigate and try to answer the question of how do these elements like gold and silver and uranium are formed in the universe? And so one of the suggestions for a long time was supernova explosions, because a lot of neutrons are formed during neutron, uh, supernova explosions. And so this is where the abundances and the chemical compositions of stars come into place, because we've studied a lot of these stars, but when we compare them to nucleosynthesis models of supernova explosions, we couldn't find a good match, meaning that the models were not able to produce the amount of abundances we are actually measuring in these stars. So there must be another event or another site for these kind of for these kind of uh, nucleosynthesis uh, to happen to produce these elements. And so another suggestion was maybe the elements were formed during a neutron star merger. And so this is when two neutron stars, um, which are dead massive stars, happen to be in a binary system and gravitationally interacting with each other for a very long time until they merge. As you can imagine, these would produce a lot of neutrons, which would be perfect for a process like the R process, which is a rapid neutron capture, because we would have a lot of flux of neutrons bombarding 
the other elements like iron, etc., and they would form heavier and heavier elements. Now, observationally, we were never able to observe this for a very long time, this event, this neutron star merger, until 2017, when LIGO and Virgo, so it's the gravitational wave experiment, was able to detect the very first neutron star merger in the universe. And with that, we observed observation that the neutron star, the R process, or lots of these heavy elements must have been formed uh, during this process. So we saw a lot of gold, we saw a lot of uranium, etc. And this is why we went back to our observations of the stars. And this is to answer your question is this is how we use the observations. Now we study these peculiar stars by looking in depth at every single element and try to match it to the models to try to answer questions of how does each of them form? And we do this for other processes as well. Is it all the stars that have these heavier elements that were formed because of neutron star mergers or? So this is a question that we are currently trying to answer because we still don't know. As I said, this, this discovery was fairly recent in 2017. And it's interesting and in kind of tying it back to what I was saying, we need to study a large sample of stars in the Milky Way in order to find out the frequency of how many of them must have been formed from this process or maybe a different process. So we're currently in the phase of collecting a lot of this data, a lot of the spectra, and then studying their chemical compositions. Right now, we have indication that tells us that the neutron star merger must be a dominant site for the formation of the R process elements, because the models compare fairly well to a lot of the observations of these stars. But we also have some discrepancies, which we're trying to solve. So the R process elements uh, span all the way in the, in the uh, periodic table uh, from strontium all the way to uranium. So that's a lot of elements. And when we try to match them to models of neutron star mergers, we find that some of them match nicely, but some of them don't, which must indicate that there might be another site for the R process, maybe contributions from special types of supernova that also produce a lot of neutrons. So other, um, other sites have been suggested such as a type of supernova called uh, um, magnetorotational supernova. So these are large, massive stars, old stars that have been rotating really, really fast. And when they undergo a supernova explosion, they also have a lot of magnetic fields. They, they produce a lot of jets, and these jets take a lot of neutrons, and so they bombard the elements such as iron and produce heavier and heavier elements. So some astronomers are suggesting that this might be another site, maybe not the dominant, but it could be another site to formation of, of these heavy elements like gold. But it's, it's really questions that we are still working on trying to answer and solve. Well, I think that brings me to the end of my question. Thank you very much for speaking to me. Yeah, thank you so much for interviewing me. I, I appreciate it. And I wish you the best of luck in this podcast. I listened to a few episodes. I thought it was very interesting. Uh, thank you for doing this initiative and good luck. Yeah, I also uh, hope that there there will be maybe some breakthrough that and we will find out that supernova jets do indeed contribute to the art process. Thank you so much. Thank you.